0: in Ruth chapter 3 this week. We're going to be looking only at verses 1 through 5. Uh, in two weeks, we're going to be taking uh, verses 6 all the way through the end. So again, if you're one of those that reads ahead, you can certainly read ahead uh, for two weeks from now the, the, the rest of the chapter in, uh, in, in Ruth. And, and as we have always done throughout this book in particular, uh, we'll read this, the passage together. If you have the ESV, the English Standard Version, in front of you, you can read from there. If not, it will be on the screen. Um, So let's display that and let's read together. And then Naomi, her mother-in-law to her, Lord Jesus, what a great sound it is to hear your saints reading your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have made your word available to us. We thank you that we can know uh, even just a glimpse of you through your word. And Lord, we thank you, and we want to ask God that through this uh, really obscure text, this weird situation that's going on here, would you open our hearts, illuminate our minds to know the glories of Christ to help us to live faithfully And follow you wholeheartedly in integrity, God. And it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. I am quite embarrassed to tell you what I'm about to tell you. I had been either 14 or 15 years old, and I was pitching on one of our team's most important games. My, my memory fails me a bit, but we were either the top team in our city league that year or we were at least second. Whatever the case, it was a really fun team to play on because we were really uh, quite, we were quite good. Um, we were playing the other best team in the league, um, and I remember it being deep in the season. It was deep in the game, and the score was, was very, very tight. Uh, I believe that they had, I know they had a man on second. And uh, this kid comes up to this plate, up to the plate, and I I remember it so well that I could tell you his name even. Uh, I'm just going to spare you. His his first name was Ben. That's all we we need to know. Um, Ben was a friend of mine, and we had been playing ball together literally our whole lives. So we knew each other very well. We we knew how we played. And... um, because of the circumstances of the game and the skill with which Ben had as a, as a hitter, uh, when he came up to the plate, the coach called time, and he came out to the mound and had a little powwow with me and, uh, and the catcher, and he gave us a strategy. He said, here's what we're going to do. We are going to intentionally walk Ben, and then we're going to go to this next hitter who was, we knew who he was, he was a weaker hitter. And so we wanted Ben to get on the base so, we, so that I could pitch um, to this next guy. And so we agreed. The coach walked back to the dugout. And, and what, what happened next, I am truly embarrassed to tell you about. Um, this happened 23 years ago, and I'm still ashamed of this. Uh, I wish that I could say that I had absolutely no idea what I was thinking, but I, I, I know exactly what I was thinking. The first thing was that I knew what I was capable of as a, as a pitcher. Um, I, I'm going to try to say this as humbly as possible. I'm not trying to brag, I'm just telling you what it was like when I was a kid. I was a fairly decent pitcher. In fact, when our town team had sort of, I don't know what you call the all star team or whatever, I was the guy that they brought in at the end of the game to shut the game down. I was typically the closer because I could throw fast and I could throw hard. And I could generally get good batters out. Um, And so I worked very, very hard, and I knew my craft very, very well. And I knew what I was capable of. Second, I also knew Ben. I knew what he was capable of as a hitter. I knew the pitches he liked. I knew the pitches that he struggled with. Uh, I knew uh, where to place the ball in order to maximize the chance of him chasing it and striking. And I knew where he thought his sweet spot was. So giving those two things together was a perfect storm for one of the most arrogant moments in my entire life, Pastor Mike's life. So what happened? Coach walks out to the dugout, called the catcher back over to me, and I said this to the catcher, I know what coach said, but here's what we're going to do. I know, Ben. We're going to pitch at him and we're going to strike him out. And I don't remember who the kid was as a catcher. He was probably a friend of mine. And he tried to talk me out of it. But at the end of the day, he's a catcher. And his job is to catch the ball wherever it goes. And so he warned me. He goes back. He crouches down. It was obvious what I was doing. I set up from the stretch. And I heard, at this point, the soft tender voice of my coach yelling obscenities at me, because he knew what was coming, and I deserved it. The first pitch, Ben hits one straight into the gap between center and right field, and uh, allowing the kid on second to score, and Ben got a double. I don't remember whether we lost that game, because I didn't play much more of the game after that. In fact, I don't remember if I even played the next game after that. But here's, I, I, I deserved it. It was totally something that, that, that I deserved. Though my intentions were, were honest and I would like to say worthy, but I'd rather say noteworthy, um, I wanted us to win. I took the matters completely into my own hands. I short-circuited the coach's plan for us to be successful. Many of us, Live our lives of faith in that same way. We look to God as if He is a good coach who wants us to win at this thing called life and this thing called faith. But when it comes down to it, we don't like the plays that He calls. They take too long, they don't make sense. Winning shouldn't need to come at such a cost in the middle of the game. So instead of following the coach's calls, we call our own plays. We feel that God has called us to something or maybe out of something, and yet we lack the patience and the faith to work for it or uh, see if God has other plans, so we devise plans of our own to get it quicker. And when that happens, faith becomes very sketchy. Up to this point in the book of Ruth, we've been focusing on what faith looks like in the dark times of life, and and we've been seeing what it looks like between the contrast of Ruth and Naomi. Naomi lost her husband. She lost her two sons. She's been left without any provision. She's been left without any protection. She's been left without any hope. And up until last week, she's been frozen in bitterness and depression. Now, contrast that with Ruth, who is a Moabite woman. She's Naomi's daughter-in-law. She also has lost a husband, but she has chosen the path of hope, love, and faith, and she's pledged her loyalty to Naomi. Now, Ruth's theology is spot on. She believes that God is sovereign over all things, but but she also believes that without her taking an initiative, her and Naomi won't survive. So she went out to the fields of Bethlehem uh, to glean, which is basically to pick up scraps in the field that the farmers leave. And in God's sovereignty, she ends up at this guy named Boaz's field. Boaz has heard about Ruth, And her kindness to Naomi, and he pampers the daylights out of Ruth and sends her home with more food and provision than she ever dreamed of. And not because of the work that she had done, but because of the goodness and the kindness and the mercy of Boaz. So Ruth comes home, and she tells Naomi all about her day. And with this, Naomi, she comes to her senses. She starts coming to life again. She tells Ruth that not only is Boaz this incredibly kind guy, but that Boaz is also what's called a redeemer to her family. He is in a position where he has the potential to legally get them out of the rut that they are in and have been for so long. And so finally, Naomi and Ruth see a turning point. And in the next couple of messages here, we're going to look at th- what what faith looks like when life seems to turn around. And I'm going to suggest that there are two ways of going about walking through the door of a turning point. The first is sketchy faith, which we're going to deal with today. The second is biblical faith, which we'll tackle in 2 weeks. And the sketchy faith is represented through Naomi. So if we want to uh, get through a transition well, we first need to be careful not to short-circuit God's plan. Be careful not to short-circuit God's plan. Look with me in verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? It's interesting here to note the dispositional change of Naomi now that she has a little bit of hope. Boaz shows up in Ruth's life, and it's a game changer for Naomi. Uh, When you live in bitterness, or when anyone lives in bitterness, it's very hard to look beyond yourself. Bitter people are very self focused. They tend to focus only on their issues, and they tend to perseverate on their own issues, and are oblivious to even the kindness of those around them. Conversely, you know how you know when bitterness begins to lift? It's when you start thinking about other people. It's when you start sacrificing your own self and your own life, your own desires for other people. You don't think less of yourself, you just think of yourself less. And that is exactly what happens to Naomi here. Notice in verse 1 that she is completely focused on Ruth. She has moved away from this mother-in-law role, uh, one who sees her daughter-in-law as this this tag-along, and she's assumed the position of mother. Notice in verse 1 that she actually calls Ruth, my daughter. And in this culture back then, uh, if you were a mother, you were heavily involved, if not leading the charge, to see your daughter be off and married. Naomi is looking beyond herself when she realizes that she will not always be around. And if things continue the way they are, Ruth is going to be in a much harder position if she is where she is after Naomi dies. So she wants Ruth to be able to find what she said, rest in a man. Now notice the word rest here. Typically in Scripture we think of rest as this word shalom. You may have heard the word shalom before. It's this idea of of peace and and wholeness and well-being. That's not the the kind of rest that Naomi's talking about here. Another word that the Hebrew uses is this word nucha which means to rest from efforts. It's to rest from war or conflict. This is what's used when Joshua is done conquering the land, and there's rest in the land. This is not what Naomi wants for Ruth. Rather, it's the word Manoah, which is a secure rest. It is a tranquil rest in a man who provides and protects for his wife. This is what Naomi wants For Ruth. So she makes it her personal mission to become Yenta the matchmaker and make sure that Ruth has a spouse. And it's here where Naomi, even in the best intentions, goes wrong. Now I'm going to call a a timeout here just for a second. I need to um, provide a little bit of caveat to what's going on here biblically. Naomi's little plot here is highly debated among the scholars. Uh, I'm consulting about nine different uh, uh, commentaries right now, and just like with any Baptist, you have, nine, I, I, you have nine people and you have ten opinions. And so you have uh, no consensus on what is going on here, which tells us this is an obscure passage, and we need to take it with a grain of salt. These ideas range from completely righteous all the way down to dirty and scandalous. And one thing that they can all agree on is that what Naomi is proposing here is very bizarre. It's completely out of character for the culture of the time. It's very risky, and it's irresponsible. So I'm going to share what I think is happening for us. But I want to let you know that this is one of these passages that I hold with an open hand, And I hold it very loosely because I just don't know. But I think what is being said here, I think that Naomi has left the proper way of going about arranging a marriage and has taken matters into her own hands. And whatever motive she has for Ruth, it's risky and it's scandalous. Chapter three comes about four to six weeks after chapter two, the beginning of the barley harvest, which means that Ruth has been in the fields of Boaz for four to six weeks. Naomi, more than likely, has been looking at her watch and seeing it's been over a month and Boaz has not made a move on my daughter-in-law yet. And so she is probably thinking that Ruth's window of opportunity is coming to a close and God hasn't done anything to budge Boaz. And so maybe, just maybe, God needs just a little bit of help here. Have you ever felt that way? And maybe God needs a little help? Maybe God isn't working fast enough in the direction that you want him to, so it's appropriate to Nudge him along a little bit? You're walking right along with Naomi here. Now, I'm not sure how she knows, but she knows that Boaz is going to be winnowing barley Uh, that evening. Now, winnowing barley was a process by which the farmers, after they harvested all of the the barley, they would go to what was called the threshing floor. It was typically a circular area that was paved by stone. And they would lay their barley out and they would either have an animal trample on it or they would take a heavy cart and roll over the crop to separate the wheat from the chaff or the barley from the chaff. And then they would take a pitchfork or some sort of tool like that, they would scoop it up, they'd throw it in the air, the wind would come, it would be typically at the bottom of a hill, the wind would blow away the chaff, the barley would fall on the ground, and then they would be able to harvest that crop. And for some successful farmers, um, they may have so much crop that they would be doing this from sun up until sundown. This is the case with Boaz, because he would need to sleep there on the threshing floor in order to protect his crop from midnight thieves. If anyone were to come around and try to steal the crop, he would be right there to defend his property. But not only that, but this was also a place and an occasion in which prostitution became highly more active. This was a good cover in the darkness for scandalous things happening without anyone knowing. And that's why Naomi's proposition here is so confusing. Look at verse 3. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. All right, let's put this in modern English, right? It says, go and take a bath which, by the way, was often a custom for engaging in, in sexual activity, she told, tells her not only to take, uh, to take a bath, but to put on perfume. And also, put on your best dress. Look the best that you can. Don't let him know that you are there until he is at his happiest. When is his happiest? after he's had a big meal, and drank a little bit of alcohol. And so we're left wondering, what does Naomi expect to happen here? But she didn't stop there. Look with me in verse 4. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Uh, Excuse me, Naomi, you're making us blush here. This is strange. We, we wouldn't get the full scandal of her point unless we understood that the word feet is only used a couple times in Scripture here, the, this, this word for feet. It's also used in Daniel chapter 6, which refers to the entire leg area. And is also understood in the ancient Near East to mean private parts. So in essence, Naomi is asking Ruth to go to him when he sleeps, uncover his nakedness, and lie down next to him. If Naomi is trying to give God some help here, she's not helping God. She's giving him more work to deal with. Because what Naomi suggests to Ruth here is exactly what a prostitute would have done at that time combine that with the fact that to the israelites moabite women were known for their promiscuity and you have a recipe for a problematic sol- uh, situation here and her suggestion at the end of this well he'll tell you what to do and ruth obliges in verse 5 by saying all that you will do i will do everything that you do so the, what in the world does naomi expect him to instruct Ruth on. And here's my deeply profound, theological, biblical, analytical answer. I have no clue. I have no clue what in the world Naomi is trying to do here because well, this is what I do know. That God desires purity for his people. He desires spiritual purity. He desires moral purity. And he desires sexual purity as well. Sex is designed by God to be be confined only in the relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. And I feel like Naomi is so desperate to have Ruth and herself redeemed, that she is willing to compromise and risk the purity and the reputation of both Ruth and Boaz for her own future. Like she feels like the count is full, it's the bottom of the ninth. They're down by they're down by three. And if she doesn't swing for the fences, well, game's over. And there's no hope. So she feels that it's appropriate to short-circuit God's plan and provision in order to bring about Ruth's protection. And maybe you do this too. Maybe you're single, and you're dating a guy or a gal who isn't a Christian, and you think that if you break this off, then you may never find another person, or you may be single forever. Maybe there are some things that you are hiding from your spouse that you would not want them to know about something you're doing or something that you're thinking. Maybe you're manipulating someone to get something that you want. Whatever the case, avoid short-circuiting God's plans. You know, Julie and I, we don't watch much TV. In fact, there's only one show that Julie and I actually do watch. It's, it's this show on NBC called This Is Us. Anybody watch This Is Us? Okay, so we have a few. Um, it's a phenomenally written show. And I'm not going to get into what the show is, is, is about, but I, I will get into what happened with one character. Spoiler alert, by the way. Uh, one character in this past week. Kevin is one of the three Pearson kids. He is 37 years old, and he is trying to break out into movies after a, a somewhat successful career in, in television. And as he was filming a scene in a war movie, he tears his meniscus in his knee and is removed from the filming Of the movie that he is in. He has to go through surgery and his doctors tell him the therapy that he needs to do. He needs to stay off it. He needs to go through physical therapy. But he is so adamant that he is going to protect and save his career that instead of going the long route of physical therapy and doing what he's supposed to do, he rather turns prescription pain medications starts popping them and goes back on the scene with his knee swollen as it is to finish the film. Now, they haven't revealed yet what's going to happen to Kevin. I have a pretty good idea, but I'm going to stay tuned until next Tuesday here. It's not good when we rush God's processes or walk ahead of him for his story in our lives. Don't get me wrong. God is concerned with your destination. But he is equally, if not more so, interested in the process of change that happens on the road to getting to your destination. And when we try to rush his. His way is when we try to rush what he's doing, we risk missing out on the good stuff that he is working out in our hearts and in our minds in the journey. At worst, we get so far ahead of him, we chart our own course and we just think that we don't need him anymore. Either way, we need to avoid short-circuiting God's plan. Second, sort of oddly compared to the first point, we need to know that you can't short-circuit God's plan. You can not short-circuit God's plan. For whatever reason, for whatever Naomi was trying to accomplish with her little plan, you know what's beautiful about it? It both doesn't work. And it works at the same exact time. It doesn't work because if we go the route that Naomi uh, w- was was going here, which is uh, crazy and, and risky in her, her plot, God doesn't allow any compromises to happen. He has set his sights on Ruth and Boaz so much, and we'll see this here in, in two weeks, that even though they are in the, a situation that has the highest chance of hormones winning the day, God does not allow anything to happen. That's a good God right there. Sovereign over situations such as that. He sovereignly uses the integrity and self-control of Boaz to create a story That would have been a complete train wreck, and he diverts it by his grace. And there are some of you here that if you thought about it long enough, you could think of example after example after example of how you planned to sin against God or go your own way, but yet... God did not allow the circumstances to line up in such a way where you could go through with it. That is a kind and merciful God. Maybe it was a crime. Maybe it was premarital or extramarital or perverted sex. Maybe it was in the intention to walk out on your family Or maybe it was the intention to take your own life. But somehow, in God's providence, He prevented in you what you were planning to do because of His great love for you. That is a good God. Have you praised Him for that? Have you thanked Him for that? that you cannot short-circuit his plan. Now, I realize that you may be here, and you're in the opposite situation. You planned to do what you were going to do, and God didn't hold you back. He allowed you to do it. There's grace for you, too. You see, God is in the business of both redeeming our intentions as well as our actions. He may hold some back by his grace, but for most of us, his grace comes in the forgiveness of our actions that is found in Jesus Christ. Ruth and Boaz were spared that night, of a great problem, a great sin, so that one day, hundreds of years later, Jesus Christ would hang on a cross for you and for me so that all of our intentions, all of our thoughts, all of our desires would be redeemed for his purpose. And he's calling you to faith and trust in him and have your guilt removed. That's you today. You can go to him right now and say, Lord Jesus, forgive me for my sin. I trust in what you've done on the cross, and I want to walk faithfully in light of who you are. You can do that today. So it's a beautiful thing that Naomi's plan didn't work out. But it's also a beautiful thing because it did. Though her plan was unorthodox, and though the details didn't work quite as well as she had directed them, we'll see how in a couple weeks. And that's mainly in the ingenuity of Ruth. God still uses this weird plot to seal the relationship between Ruth and uh, Ruth and, and Boaz. You see, in Psalm one hundred and fifteen. Verse 3, it tells us that our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And Nebuchadnezzar rightly admitted in Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, when he said, God, he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him what have You done. God is completely sovereign over all things, and He can either stop our foolish plans in order for His purposes to continue, or He can use our foolish plans to somehow fulfill what He has ordained. I love playing the game of chess with my sons. And one thing, I don't pretend to be any good, but one thing that I've learned about the game of chess is that you're always doing one of two things. You are always trying to take your ideas of how to move your pieces in such a way in which you can dominate the board. Or you can take the moves of your opponents and use those moves to fulfill your plan of how you're going to win the game. Either way, you win the game. And that is how God plays. Whether it's our actions or His actions, God always wins. And that's a comforting thought because whatever we experience in life, God is using everything we go through for our good in all things. You know, I totally blew it on the pitcher's mound that that evening, 20-some years ago. I short-circuited the plan, and I probably blew it for my team. I honestly don't know what happened. I probably repressed that memory of whether we won that game or not. But it wasn't wasted. I learned, and I grew. And we ought not to short-circuit God's plan through sketchy faith. But if we do, his sovereignty still stands. He still loves and gives grace. And his plan for your life continues to march onward. And maybe you're at a turning point in your faith right now. And from here on out, trust in him. Trust in his ways and follow him with all integrity. Let's go to him together, friends. Father in heaven. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy, Lord. We thank you that we do some stupid things sometimes. But Lord, in your grace and your mercy, you still love us. You still knew those things were going to happen and you're using those for the for your plans in our lives, Father. I pray right now if there's if there's people in this room that they admit, oh, man, Lord, I've fallen short. I'm I'm trying to do things this way. I'm pushing God off. I'm I, I, I'm working things this way. I'm I'm in a relationship I shouldn't be. I'm I'm doing this whatever it is, Lord. That we would that we would take those words that we sung earlier. That Lord, we come. We confess that bowing here, we take our rest in you, Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray for those that may not have ever known Jesus and the forgiveness that's in him and the redemption of our situations, God, that those people right now by faith would say, Lord Jesus, save me from my sins. I know that your work on the cross, your work in your life and your resurrection has done this work for me. Now, Lord, change me, renew me, make me new. And Lord, I am going to follow you wholeheartedly. You are my Lord and Savior, and from here on out, it's me and you. And so, Father, would you do that work in all of our hearts, our minds, our souls, for our good and for your glory, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. Would you stand with me in the worship team?